So welcome back to silence. Uh, Susan and I are going to share this evening, and I'll I'll begin. Uh, I'll begin actually with a, a saying from the the Chinese tradition, which is, "If you want to understand the nature of water, look at the waves." And and this very much is. Uh, at the heart of our practice, we're trying to see into the nature of our experience. And it's one of the reasons why ultimately there isn't a preferential system, like that experience is not really very good, and that one is better, and that one is awfully shallow, and that one is tremendously deep. And, you know, it's not like that. We try to see into each and every experience. And, uh, it doesn't matter what we are looking at if, in fact, these aspects, these elements of reality are universal, we should be able to see them everywhere, right? Um, and it kind of reminds me of a quotation from St. Augustine who said something like, if what we're looking for is everywhere, we don't need travel to get there, we need love. We need a transformed relationship to what is. And because of that transformed relationship, we will be able to see into the life of things. We'll be able to see uh, a more ultimate nature in anything that happens. And so, at least according to the Buddhist tradition, these characteristics, these qualities that we will see are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, um, and emptiness or selflessness. And each of these characteristics has uh, many aspects to them. When we talk about change, when we think about change, usually it's in terms of the fleeting nature of things. You know, nothing can be grasped, nothing can be successfully held on to. Uh, everything is so tentative. It's, it's moving all of the time. There's also an aspect to impermanence, which is about beginnings, renewal, opening, possibility. They're each true, and they're each very important. It's because of the truth of change that there is a sense of not needing to be imprisoned within the, the confines of our own habitual tendencies. It's because of change that we know that tomorrow doesn't have to look like today or Maybe the self-image we've been carrying forever, it seems, doesn't need to prevail. There's opening, there's movement, there's flow in everything. Sometimes this sense of change is quite incremental, it's very subtle. Sometimes it's after perhaps an accumulated period, it's, it's very dramatic. Things like tilt on an axis, and they're different. One of my favorite uh, stories about that actually comes from this time when I was at a conference in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, some friends and I left one afternoon to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And we went, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we went to the Bruce Springsteen exhibit. In front of the, the exhibit on the glass was a letter that Bruce Springsteen had written when Bob Dylan had gotten inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he talked about the first time he'd ever heard Bob Dylan's music. 
I don't know how old he was. The this implication is that he's pretty young. He said he was riding with his mother in a car, and Bob Dylan's music came over the radio. And uh, Bruce Springsteen said, it was like a giant boot came down and kicked open the door of my mind. And he said, and then my mother said, that man can't sing. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but sometimes it's like that. It's like this giant boot has come down and kicked open the door of our minds. It's like, whoa, it's a different world. So we see all aspects of, of impermanence, that sense of opening, possibility, creation, renewal, and also that tentativeness, the fleetingness, and and how how really impossible it is to hold on, to be in control of things. Once here I was um, uh, teaching in the fall, and it was a beautiful, glorious, magnificent autumn. And I got a call from a friend of mine in California who'd actually never been to the East Coast, and she said, I'm going to come visit in a couple of weeks. So I so much wanted her to witness this extraordinary autumn and that every day when I would walk around, I would sort of look balefully at those leaves on the trees, and I'd think, you better stay up there. <laughs> and then the next day, I would do the same thing, and then the same thing. And then one day, she called me, and she said, well, you know, something has come up, so I can't come, actually. And I can remember one of the first feelings that I had was some sense of relief. Like, oh, now I can let the leaves fall from the trees, <laughs> you know? but they fall anyway. So that becomes uh, part of our sense of life because it's, it's realistic. You know, we see into our experience, we see into the heart of change. And then there's this word that's usually translated as suffering or unsatisfactoriness. I think it's actually quite difficult to translate. The word in Pali is dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, dukkha. And... Uh, it means everything from that very uh, intense, grave, terrible kind of suffering we may go through to just sort of the tentativeness, the insecurity, um, the fact that we don't know what's going to happen in one moment. And we so much wish we did. It's like the poignancy of life. Uh, the changeability in, in that sense, uh, very much of the fleeting nature of things. Um, it's also, there's a certain kind of dukkha, which is a sense of uh, just recognizing the conditioned nature of our existence. You know, that things don't happen according to our will or our wish, that conditions all need to come together for something to happen. I once had a friend who was, who was suffering terribly um, psychologically, emotionally, in what seemed to be, uh, it seemed like it was going to go on absolutely forever. And I remember I was talking to a Tibetan teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, uh, feeling sort of helpless, you know, that I couldn't really make the situation better. And, and I said uh, to Sokni Rinpoche, I don't think it's fair. You know, why don't we get one person that we can just like look at them and say, poof, your suffering's gone. You know, it's just not fair. 
And I can remember he looked at me. And of course, it's, you know, it's difficult. Like, how do you choose your person? And you don't want to do it too soon. And you don't want to do it too late. You know, but he looked at me and he laughed. And he said, that's why we call it samsara. This world of birth and death, of constant change, of things being outside of our control. That's why we call it samsara. Because we don't get one person where we can just say poof and their suffering is gone. For anything to manifest, all the conditions need to come together. And while not grave and and terrible suffering, it's its own kind of, of tenderness, of sensitivity, of recognition. Yeah, I'm not in control of the unfolding of events. Things are the way that they are. There's a very subtle kind of... um, feeling tone to it. But none of this, you know, this aspect of the teaching is not about being morose and, and unhappy. You know, once, um, sometimes talk about how many years ago I, I was reading the New Yorker magazine um, because there was an article on Buddhism in the magazine and whoever wrote the article said, according to the Buddha, the purpose of life is to suffer. And I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Sign me up for that, you know? (laughs) And it's certainly not the case that the Buddha said the purpose of life is to suffer. He said, as Guy quoted the other night, I teach one thing and one thing only that is suffering and the end of suffering. And if anything, the, the teaching about suffering is the doorway to tremendous compassion. It's the doorway, uh, first of all, to recognizing how much we share. There is no one that's immune from this aspect of life. You know, not everybody has the same situation. Not everybody has the same maybe kind of intensity or duration of a a particular kind of suffering. But there is nobody that is exempt. So this understanding, this greater understanding of suffering should bring us closer together as we understand our vulnerability, as we understand that that this is the truth of things in some aspect or another. is dukkha. It's not that we... Um, it's also not so that in the Buddhist tradition that suffering is considered redemptive. The point is not to suffer. It's how we relate to suffering. It's suffering as a doorway that is transforming, that is redemptive. It's the opening, it's the caring, it's the compassion, it's the presence, rather than what maybe we've been taught so strongly, which is uh, to hate it and hate ourselves, to pull away, to be ashamed, to um, want to push others away. Now, Susan said the other night something about, when she was uh, talking about sympathetic joy, and she said something about how in our culture and the society, It can be so difficult to open to joy that we're not really taught that in some way. And I was sitting here um, listening, and I was thinking, that is so true, and I don't think we're taught to open to suffering either. So what are we taught? (laughs) Really, because what is the cultural dictum about pain or unhappiness or fear or suffering? You know, it's go away, pretend it's not there make them go away, you know, that's unsightly. Um, 
cut it off, be isolated, isolate others. You know, so in this opening to suffering, there's something amazing that happens, which is not about being overcome by it, but about using it as a vehicle for understanding how connected we all are. From not, you know, a vehicle for not like pulling away and looking the other way. But understanding that we can be present with our own pain and, and with one another. So so the the process of opening to the truth of suffering, seeing the unsatisfactoriness, the tentativeness, the vulnerability that is in all experiences um, is very strongly indicative of the compassion that that will then flow from that. And then there is um, anatta or selflessness or, or emptiness as the third characteristic. And the aside from the kind of deconstructing of our seemingly solid reality, the other uh, aspect of it, or another aspect of it, is really the truth of interconnectedness. Because it's not that um, there's this idea that as we see into the, we could say, the empty or transparent nature of experience that it sort of gets erased. It's not like the delete button. But we see that what exists does exist as a combination of conditions in this this very dreamlike dreamlike world that nothing and no one stands alone or apart. So for example, when um, we at IMS celebrated the 20th anniversary of the center, uh, we had a party. We had another party when we turned 30, but at, at the 20 year mark, we had a party. And even though we moved in in the winter, it's a little difficult to have a party in the winter in New England. So we had it in the summer. And as part of that celebration, some uh, teenagers who sat here planted a tree in the garden. So it's still there. And you can go down and look at that tree. Now, there's one way of seeing the tree. So it it seems to be just this singular, solid entity, separate. It's a tree. There's another way of looking at the tree and sensing the soil, which is nourishing it, and everything that's affecting the quality of that soil, and the rain which falls upon it, and everything which affects the quality of the rain, and the sunlight and the moonlight and the quality of the air, and you know, on and on and on. There's a way of seeing that tree as part of a network of relationships and Influences and interactions and connections, that's the tree. And so that understanding of life is what allows us to see deeply into the nature of interconnection. Nothing and no one stands apart. And this isn't like fanciful thinking. It's not being kind of sentimental or romantic about life. This is actually how things are. You know, sometimes sitting in front of a room full of people like this, I'll say, how about if all of us just reflect for a moment on everyone who in some way had an effect on us so that we're here now, tonight? You know, everybody who read us 
a poem or gave us a book or told us about their meditation experience or something they'd read. So what if we included them in our sense of who is here tonight? And I also like to include sometimes those people who've really, really hurt us. Not like the mildly difficult people, but the ones whose actions have really brought us to a kind of edge. So we've almost had to say, I've got to look for something different. I've got to find a a deeper sense of of some kind of uh, happiness in life. So what if we included them too? And every form of life involved in the clothing that we're wearing. And the food that we ate today. You know, being from New York, I don't usually start with the creatures in the ground, but I think there are creatures in the ground that have something to do with that string bean. <gasps> you know, and then who planted the seed and who harvested it and who transported it and who sold it here before it was prepared? There's a lot of life in that string bean. You know, and everything actually is like that. So that's part of our vision of reality, too, and it's true. So these three aspects of, of experience, which we see more and more and more clearly as we practice, uh, form really our vision of life. And it's said that that kind of worldview, based on, on this experience, on more expansive experience, Uh, The worldview that we hold forms the basis for our intention or motivation. And motive or intention in that sense, um, certainly within the Buddhist tradition, is considered a very crucial part of our action, what we do, what we say, what we choose not to say in in some situation. The... um, the the motive is really the uh, the crucial energetic component of an action because it's within the motive where the heart space that is sparking or inspiring or guiding that action uh, that the energy really is. So classically, we would say that that's where the karmic seed gets planted is in the motive. You know, if I was to um, reach down and offer you my wonderful wake-up cup, You know, all anybody sees is my hand moving down, picking up an object, and moving it forward. But why am I doing that? You know, what's what's motivating me? Maybe I really like you, and I want you to have the wake-up cup. Maybe I see you have a better cup. (laughs) And I think, well, hey, you know, maybe I'll give you this old cup, and you'll give me that great cup that you have. Or maybe it's because I'm here in front of a room full of people and I want everyone to think, wow, she's so generous. You know, it's all the same action, just my hand moving down, picking up an object and moving it forward. But it's coming from a completely different place inside and that's where the power of it is said to be, not in my hand you know, picking something up and moving it forward. So the worldview we have, the, uh, the sense of, of what life is, forms our, 
our intentions, our our motives. And then the motives, of course, lead to action, to the things we do, the things that we say. We practice mindfulness because... uh, We practice mindfulness for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that we can be in touch with that whole field of motivation to understand where we're coming from in in what we do. And it's also uh, said that if you do a practice like loving-kindness practice or compassion practice or sympathetic joy practice, it will transfigure the field of motivation. So that if, for example, in general, we have been coming from a place of fear in, in the things that we do, in the ways that we act, and we do a practice like loving kindness, it will transform that so that we are coming more from a place of connection. And one of the things that has always been striking to me about this, um, this teaching is that it's one of the reasons why, in a way, uh, loving kindness doesn't become part of an assumed persona. You know, something has shifted inside of us so that we're coming from a different place. And it's, it's not like studied, it's not self-conscious, it's not like giving oneself a lecture. Um, sometimes I tell the story about my uh, friend, my colleague, Sylvia Borstein, who um, was teaching here with us once and then flying home to San Francisco and her plane stopped in Chicago on the way. And then it it took off again for that second leg of the flight. And she said that in that second part of the flight, about maybe 40 minutes into the flight, the pilot got on the PA system and he said, now, there's really nothing to worry about, but we've developed a little problem in the hydraulic system of the plane, and rather than fly over the Rockies without a fully functioning hydraulic system, we're just going to turn back. And he said, now, there's really nothing to worry about, and the flight attendants will now instruct you in the position to take in the event of an emergency <laughs> landing, and they'll come around taking all of your eyeglasses and all of your shoes and all of the pens out of your pockets, which... I didn't really understand until a flight attendant said to me, well, that's the kind of thing you do if you expect someone will have to go down an emergency chute, you know, so nothing catches, nothing rips. So they did that, and there's Sylvia sitting there. And she decided to do loving-kindness practice. Um, and she, she decided she was going to do loving-kindness practice for the people she's closest to in this life, her husband, children, their partners, and then her grandchildren. And when she got to her youngest grandchild, uh, she began again with her husband and was just going through the phrases, you know, for these people she loved so much. Now, Sylvia also said that for some reason, the pilot kept getting back on the PA system every five minutes. And he'd say, we're going to be landing in 35 minutes. We're going to be landing in 30 minutes. We're going to be landing in 25 minutes. And every time he did that, she'd just go back to doing loving kindness as she'd been doing it for these people so so close to her. And then the pilot got on the PA system and he said, we're going to be landing in five minutes. And Sylvia thought, in five minutes, either I'll be dead or I'll still be alive. 
And when at that moment, when she went back to doing the loving kindness practice, she said she found that the only way she could do the practice was for all beings everywhere, without limit, without boundary, without exception. And so she spent five minutes doing loving kindness practice for all beings. She said when the plane landed, it was a landing like any other landing, and they fixed whatever was wrong, and then they took off again to San Francisco. But the reason that I love that story is because I love the sense of that moment when she just couldn't. There's no self-consciousness. It was not like trying to live up to somebody else's image. She just couldn't. You know, it's not like she was sitting there thinking, well, I don't really want to send loving kindness to everybody, but I am a Buddhist meditation teacher, you know, and what if anybody found out, you know, I spent five minutes, the last five minutes of my life, you know, just offering love to my grandchildren, you know, my family. Wouldn't be very seemly. I'd better force myself to, you know, it's not like that. She just couldn't. Sometimes for us knowing we might die in five minutes, we just can't. Sometimes it's through the the force of continually expanding our sense of possibility that we can open, that we can include, that we can reach out. Things shift. And of course, the, the Dalai Lama is my absolute favorite uh, example or illustration of this. One doesn't get the sense that He's kind of biding his time till you go away, you know, and someone more interesting comes along. Um, as one of my friends once said, uh, giving, as after His Holiness got the Nobel Peace Prize, she said, giving the Dalai Lama a peace prize is like giving Mother Nature an art award. <laughs> but it didn't just happen either. You know, he will say that. Clearly, he practices. He's devoted. It's a tremendous kind of dedication. To say that it's, it's become more natural doesn't mean it's haphazard, you know. Um, it's, it's the force of that dedication and, and the commitment and reaching for that sense of possibility and having an immense aspiration and working to make it real that we, we transfigure the things that motivate us, that the way we look at the world, the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at one another, and so this becomes the, the basis for living a very different kind of life. I think I'll turn it over soon. Well, you all look intact, (laughs) having survived the transition from silence to speaking. One of the things that, um, what I'm going to be talking about is some of the very uh, practical ways of transitioning from retreat back into daily life. Um, The ways that we can hopefully continue to develop the qualities that we've been cultivating here this week. 
And I always like to start by telling about uh, my own experience with leaving retreats. Because for quite a number of years, I found it a very painful process. I really, uh, not that the retreat experience was entirely pleasant by any means, as you have learned from some of my talks here that, you know, I often struggled a lot on retreat, but one arrives in certain levels of concentration and openness of heart and the cultivation of mindfulness that is a little bit different than our daily lives. So for me, leaving a retreat for years, when it was time to break silence, I hid. I just didn't want to do it. I must have tried it once and found it to be excruciating and then decided I wasn't going to do it. So I would just, you know, go to the room that was kept in silence (laughs) or go outside or do something. And it took me a while to get that actually I was creating a certain kind of suffering in doing that, that actually I was trying desperately to hold on to what had happened for me in the retreat, whether it was just a certain level of stillness or concentration or an openness. And of course, already, once we start trying to hold on, it's gone. You know, so I was really creating my own problem in not letting go. So I like to remind people as they are leaving a retreat that perhaps the most reliable thing to take with you is not clinging. That it changes. Just like Sharon was describing, impermanence is a truth in our experience. So let it change. Accept that it changes. See if you can be open to the changes. And probably, maybe, for some of you, that's already happened today or is happening. That being said, in terms of letting go of retreat experience, there are also things that we can do to keep our practice alive, to keep nourishing it supporting it, helping it to grow. And of course, one of the most uh, powerful ways to do this is to continue to practice. So if you don't already have a daily practice, I'd like to encourage you to try having one. And I know that for most people, it seems everybody, no matter what their work... (laughs) Their lives are very, very busy. So it can be a great challenge to try to incorporate a time of stillness into our busy lives. There are certain things that can help. Perhaps the most important thing, especially if you're just newly establishing a daily practice, is to really take care in the commitment that you make to it. And what I mean is, don't overcommit, because then it will be easy to get discouraged. You know, if you leave a retreat, and I've done this as well, you know, very inspired and feeling like, okay, you know, I'm going to sit twice a day, morning and evening, you know, for an hour each. 
it's too much in my life. It doesn't happen. So we need to look at what we can realistically do. And for some of us, that might be an hour a day, morning and evening. For some of us, it might be just a few minutes. So really see, find a sense of that for yourself. Regularity in terms of place is helpful. Regularity in terms of time, so creating a space for yourself in your home, someplace, or perhaps in your office if you're lucky, someplace that you recognize and go to regularly as your place of practice so that it's there kind of reminding you. That can be helpful. Something else that it's quite closely linked to what I was saying in terms of letting go of retreat experience, you know, not trying to hold on to the perhaps rarefied states that arise with the kind of continuous practice that we've been doing is to make a conscious effort to let go of expectations in your daily practice. Because again, it can be such a setup for disappointment and discouragement if what we remember from the retreat is like the high point, you know, that most exquisitely pleasant sitting that we had or walking. And then we sit down in daily life and it's just a torrent of thinking and restlessness and agitation. So if one can remember to, at the beginning of a period of practice, just really let go of expectations with the intention of opening to what is, it's a great support. Another way that um, can be really powerful, and especially in an ongoing way in our lives, in terms of the development of mindfulness, is to choose perhaps certain activities in life that one does on a regular basis and then train in being mindful in those activities. So, for example, choosing a particular staircase in your home or your office and just really making an effort to be aware of just be present in your body, embodied mindfulness as one climbs the stairs or descends the stairs. And if we do this over and over, you know, you'll forget, but remembering and practicing it, that staircase becomes a place of practice. Something that I've used over the years is um, making the transition from being indoors to outdoors. And for me, this really works because I love the outdoors so much. So it's a very pleasant experience, and I'm kind of interested in it and awake quite naturally anyway when I go outdoors. But I actually kind of have trained myself in just that moment of shifting from indoors to outdoors to be present, to really kind of settle back into the senses and the sense experience of the coolness or warmth of the air, the sounds, the sights. So just you can build in moments and areas of mindfulness in your lives.
of course, if you can get away for another retreat, it can, they're very powerful uh, opportunities to deepen your practice. And the support of sitting with other people is immeasurable. This is really the, the gift of sangha, community, like-minded community. So it can be helpful to see if there's a sitting group in your area and, f- and join them. And if there isn't one, it only takes two to make a group. So you could start one if you know of anyone else who practices. If you already have a practice of Vipassana and you found a connection here with the metta uh, practice, I'd also encourage you to uh, experiment with that, to play with it, to invite it in to your, to your practice. And you could do that by doing a little bit of metta at the beginning or the ending of your daily practice. You can also um, really uh, trust your intuitive sense of how to let that unfold. Perhaps you feel naturally just to stay with yourself as the metta object for quite a while. Or maybe you felt um, very connected when we opened it up to all beings. It's fine. You can do that. So let yourself go where you're drawn to with the metta and let it continue to grow. I also find that both with mindfulness and for me, particularly with the metta, it um, translates really nicely into any times of waiting. So if one is waiting in line, say, at the supermarket, where I might normally be impatient or um, frustrated or just bored or disconnected, just a few moments of doing metta, standing in line for those people around me, automatically brings in, um, for me, a sense of connection and happiness some upliftment in the heart. Airports. Airports are great places for metta, particularly if your flight is delayed. (laughs) Because it's the opposite energy to aversion. So any situations where you might normally have some aversion arising, try some metta. It is an antidote. To aversion. I also want to speak a bit about um, using the precepts as a place of practice in daily life. The Buddhist teachings um, are presented in a, as a threefold training: sila, or ethical conduct; samadhi, concentration, meditation practice; and panya. Wisdom. Ethical conduct is a support to the development of concentration. And then it's out of concentration that our own understanding grows, that wisdom develops. So in a way, it's a kind of linear progression. But it isn't only that. Because sila, or ethical conduct, is also the natural 
expression of a mind that's developed in wisdom. We naturally do not harm other beings when we have this deeper understanding of our interconnectedness and understanding of the laws of cause and effect. So as we leave a retreat, um, it can be really useful to reflect on the precepts and to use these areas as a kind of training ground for mindfulness in daily life. So just to refresh your memory, refraining from killing or not harming other living beings, refraining from stealing or not taking what is not freely offered, refraining from lying or speech that is harsh or divisive, refraining from sexual misconduct or not using our sexual energy in ways that harm ourselves or others, and not taking intoxicants, not clouding the mind. These are pretty straightforward uh, areas of uh, training and easy to commit to on a retreat where it's a limited time frame and a very protected environment. They're much more complex to interpret in our daily life. But Buddhist ethics aren't presented as a system of right and wrong. You know, that we need to Um, beat ourselves up about or hold ourselves apart from others with or adhere to because we should. They're really um, just pointing to areas in our lives that are very important to pay attention to, to develop more mindfulness, more care. Really, they're ways that we come to understand the consequences of our behavior in terms of suffering or happiness, development of happiness or liberation. And in considering the precepts, in using them as um, areas of practice in our daily lives, it's also, uh, I find, sometimes useful to reflect on their positive counterparts. So cultivating kindness and compassion, generosity and renunciation, contentment, a love of the truth, and of course, mindfulness, that clarity of mind. For much of my adult life, um, I had the luxury of uh, doing a fair number of retreats and kind of living in the neighborhood of retreats and then living here for a while. I first uh, started sitting in California and immediately after my first retreat experiences signed up, you know, to be on staff for, for retreats. So I managed retreats out there for a couple of years and 
And then I came here and sat here and then stayed here and served on staff here for a couple of years. But even after I left my time on staff here, I just stayed in the neighborhood. <laughs> it was as though I had really found my spiritual home in the practice and in this place. So even when I was doing other work, it was work that was affiliated with the center. And then over the years, I began to teach. So the, the Vipassana community has really been my home and my family for quite a long time. Until about six years ago when I fell in love and got married. And the person that I married already had two children. So I became a step-parent of two kids who, at the time we got together, were 11 and 13 and are now 17 and 19. And this is all to say that um, in the last few years, my life has become an experiment in how one practices in the full catastrophe <laughs> kind of way, and how what I've learned on the cushion translates, or not, into daily life. And it's been really interesting. <laughs> I know now why I waited until I was nearly 50 <laughs> to get married. <laughs> I needed to train for it. <laughs> I can say that I've actually been um, happy to see that it does translate. Uh, and in recent years, uh, a big part of my my life and my husband's life is really um, helping a, a teenage male survive those years. And I mean that nearly literally. And I know that many of you understand what I mean. You've been doing this very same practice, I'm sure. So here are a few things that um, I've been finding helpful in my fairly new uh, householder practice. Maybe you all know this already. <laughs> One thing is um, simply remembering to let go and begin again. You know how it happens that we get caught up in some kind of reactivity, some kind of hindrance, that arises in response to what's happening in our lives. And just like on the cushion, we can let go in that moment that we recognize that that's happening and return to mindfulness, to presence. It can be really powerful. So letting go of a reaction, letting go quite simply, often, just of the contraction that happens physically in response to something, a contraction of fear or anger. Even at times, experimenting with letting go of my ideas about how I think should, things should be. 
Do I really know that a home without IMing and TV would be better? I feel like I know that. <laughs> I love how some of you reclassified the hindrances today. <laughs> it would certainly be my preference but it would also be my preference in my practice not to have the hindrances arising of wanting things to be a certain way and not wanting things to be another way. So how do we deal with it when it is arising? One thing is to remember that it is a practice. It's not something we get and then we've got. And then we've got it for the rest of our lives. And for me, it helps just remembering that it's a practice because I, that makes it easier to begin again, to let go and begin again. It's an alive, moment-by-moment moment kind of thing. It's not fixed. I can also say um, from recent experience that I've noticed that the hours that I have put in on the cushion have been, um, and the familiarity that I've developed in those hours on the cushion with the sense of identification, that ego identification with experience, has been helpful in my family situations. So, for an example, you know, I can think of recent experiences in my kitchen <laughs> where things were being said that I could have taken really personally. And what happened was I could feel the energy, almost like a snake rising up of the ego, like, oh, rising up and wanting to grab on and be hurt and offended and defensive or justified. And just feeling that energy rising up and seeing it clearly, that feeling is really mindfulness, it settled back. It didn't happen. I was really happy about this. <laughs> it was no small thing. So this is how our practice translates in daily life. Keeping a don't know mind is also helpful for me as is, again, aligning with my intention. Really um, just remembering what it is I really want, really want on a deeper level. And it's to be present, to be kind, to be helpful, if possible. It's to love well. So what does that mean for us? In closing, I want to share with you um, a story, personal story about uh, what I call a householder's, my householder's insight. It reveals a little bit of my neurotic tendencies. So <laughs> this was a couple of years ago during the holidays. And um, the kids were with their mom for Christmas Eve. So that day, 
uh, my husband and I were home on our own, and I had the time and the energy and the interest to just kind of, we were having some friends over that evening, so I just kind of went through the house and really made it just the way I like it, you know, which is uncluttered and clean and clear and I strung up some little lights and lit some candles and had a fire in the fireplace and it was really beautiful and conducive to calm. So I liked it quite a bit and the friends came over and we had a lovely evening and the kids came home late and we all went to bed and when we got up in the morning, it was Christmas Day, and we had some breakfast and exchanged gifts with each other. And what I experienced was, um, to me, it's, <laughs> it seemed like everything coming undone rapidly. You know, you know the scene, I'm sure. <laughs> um, paper shredded and strewn all over the living room, Uh, everybody's belongings all over in, you know, in the shared common space, Um, bickering, you know, brother and sister bickering and just general hubbub. The computer goes on and, you know, the TV's on upstairs and just felt sort of like dirt and debris (laughs) filling my previously beautiful space. And I, you know, there might have been a little bit of aversion (laughs) arising. Um, But I I suddenly, I just felt like overwhelmed and upset. And I had the foresight for some reason to say to my husband, I just need to be alone. I'm going to go sit for a little while. So I went and put my bottom on the cushion and closed my eyes and it didn't take long at all um, for me to see that I was trying to create something externally that actually was already available internally. And it was really only, it really is only internally that it's reliable. I saw that the very quality of awareness itself was clear and uncluttered. And it was there that I could go for refuge and for nourishment, for renewal. And it doesn't mean that thoughts weren't arising in my sitting, that it was a clear sitting. Or, you know, it doesn't mean that emotions aren't there or even some hindrances. But as we've been saying in the past days, the awareness itself is unaffected by what's arising. It really is the spaciousness that I long for, and it's available. So my wish for you all in parting is that you avail yourselves of it. I'd like to close with just a couple of lines by someone named Marie Edith Benon. 
We have only this moment, sparkling like a star in our hand and melting like a snowflake. Let us use it before it is too late. Let's sit together for a couple of minutes in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.